When Dr. Stephanie Poindexter was a child, her parents often took her to the Brookfield Zoo, just outside her hometown of Chicago. Like many children, she was captivated by the apes. Unlike many children, she would go on to make primates her life's work. Today, Dr. Poindexter is a primatologist and assistant professor of anthropology at the University at Buffalo. And while she still has a fondness for all primates, she has spent the past decade laser-focused on one species in particular, the little understood and endlessly fascinating creature called the slow loris. Welcome to Driven to Discover, a University at Buffalo podcast that explores what inspires today's innovators. My name is Vicki Santos, and I will be your host for episode two, The Slow Loris. I'm here with Dr. Poindexter, and would you please tell us about how you first became interested in primates? Sure. The first thing that got me interested in primates would be visiting the zoo with my dad. We spent, I can't even think of how many weekends at the Brookfield Zoo. And I feel like we always started at the primate house and we probably ended at the primate house, but that's where it started. What is it about them that intrigued you then or intrigues you now? It was seeing how similar they were to us. Many of the primates that they have at the Brookfield Zoo are in little family groups or they're housed socially. And so you could see young individuals with older individuals and the way they sort of cared for each other was is pretty similar to how my family sort of cared for me. That has always intrigued me. Most people get interested in something as a kid and then kind of outgrow it. How did you know that you wanted to study primates when you grew up? I actually decided to study primates sort of later. Later in life seems not accurate, but later than my childhood. Um, When I was younger, I knew I wanted to do research. And at the time, I think the only way I thought you could sort of do research in the way that it's presented to you typically is in a lab coat. And so I thought I wanted to be a medical doctor. But I did spend a lot of time with like little science kits and microscopes and, and doing experiments in the backyard. But uh, ultimately, I decided that when I went to college, I was going to be pre-med and that medical school would be the best way to sort of express my interest in research. How did you pivot to primates from med school? When I initially started undergraduate, I knew that I wanted to be an anthropology major. You know, I'd done all of my research about medical school. I knew all of the prerequisites and that I would spend a lot of time in the biology department, chemistry department, the physics department. But I thought being an anthropology major would give me sort of a unique perspective on humans and, um, you know, maybe make me a better doctor in the long run. And the first class I took in the anthropology department was human evolution. And the very first section of that class was on primates as you know, primates are sort of the root of human evolution. And I realized that people studied primates for a living. What can you tell us about the slow loris? Slow lorises are small bodied. They are, you know, they have really big eyes. They've got very strong grip. They can't jump, and so they have to find lots of connections throughout the forest. Um, And from that perspective, they move in this really sort of um, agile way and in this really sort of graceful way when I I think about it. But they primarily eat tree gums, and so they create holes in, in tree bark, which makes them 
produce this resin or this gum that they, they primarily eat. Most species live in sort of a dispersed family group where there'll be a male, a female, and then uh, the female's offspring. But slow lorises are also venomous. That's always a very fun fact. They are definitely threatened. Their populations in the wild are, are steadily declining. And so, you know, we need conservation interventions to, to help repopulate them and to help sort of bolster their wild populations for the future. How did they become endangered? So they are threatened by many things that are sort of plaguing lots of animals in terms of deforestation. So there's just less forested areas for these wild animals to be in. Um, in addition to that, slow lorises are very cute. They have very big eyes, very round faces. They're small and furry. And so people sometimes collect them as pets. People will have them as photo props. So you could visit a bar within their geographic range and even outside of their geographic range and maybe take a picture with one. And what happens when these um, people find out that they are venomous? People abandon them. Sometimes they bring them to rescue centers, which is sort of the best case scenario. But sometimes people just put them on a tree wherever, wherever they find one, which is not uh, great for wild populations or for those individuals. How were you introduced to the slow loris? I have faint memories of learning about slow lorises when I was an undergraduate. So my major was in physical anthropology with sort of a, a focus in primate studies. And so WashU had more primatologists than I think I've ever seen in a department today. And I took a lot of classes in primate conservation, biology, um, evolution. And so I definitely learned about slow lorises then, but it wasn't until I did my master's in primate conservation at Oxford Brookes University in the UK that I really got a thorough introduction to slow lorises and, and all there was that we can learn about them and, and what we didn't know and what we did know. And so I definitely attribute that to my time as a master's student. Why the slow loris? Why not the slow loris? So there are so many primates, and I think, especially being in an anthropology department, the root of why anthropologists were interested in primates was trying to figure out how humans evolved. So we're looking back at um, different hominin species, and you kind of keep stepping backwards, you get to great apes, you keep stepping backwards, you get to diurnal monkeys, and then you take another step back and you get to nocturnal strepsorines, which are slow lorises. And I realized with the help of my PhD advisor, that what we know about slow lorises, it pales in comparison to what we know about other great apes. And so as kind of a young researcher trying to figure out what route to take and, and what would be interesting to me, the slow lorises, you know, filled a lot of the things that I think are important when you're developing a research project in that there are so many gaps in our knowledge about them. And I personally find them to be a really interesting species. And so... I started studying slow lorises, and I haven't looked back, really. What would you say are some of the more important discoveries you've made about the slow loris while researching them? So a lot of my work is focused on how slow lorises understand their environment. And the way that we do that is by studying their movement and studying their, their social interactions with other slow lorises. A part of my work has been understanding 
how they move to different resources. And so one thing that came out of some research I did while I was in graduate school was that slow lorises move to goal locations similar in a similar way that much larger daytime diurnal primates would move to them. So the idea is that having a larger brain and being more social makes you a more intelligent primate. And what we were seeing is that even in a smaller group with a smaller brain moving at night, you have a pretty clear understanding of, of your environment and how to get to different locations. What can we gain from studying them? When I think about being in an anthropology department and having a lot of interests that are rooted in biological anthropology, a lot of that is focused on studying and understanding humans and how we evolved. And humans are also primates, just like slow lorises are. And so we're all in the same order in that what I can extract from observing slow lorises can be really informative about what might be an innate thing within humans. And so I think we spend a lot of time thinking about humans as being distinct and unique and different than other primates. And my perspective on all of that is that we are more similar than we are different in a lot of ways. Can you walk me through the process of researching and studying the slow loris in their natural environments? What do you have to do to get ready to go and be there? And what is it like once you're there? Planning to go is a big endeavor. There is lots of ordering equipment. There is a lot of safety precautions. There are permits that you need to get from wherever, um, whatever country or whatever location you plan to go. You need to let people know that you plan to sort of root around in their forested areas at night, um, or else you might surprise someone and, and we don't want that to happen. Once we get there, there's probably a day or two in, in the city that we fly into. So I'm recently, recently I'm, I've been doing some work in Thailand. And so we fly into Bangkok. We're probably there for a day or two, gathering some things, doing a little shopping, and then we will head to the field site. And it normally takes a couple hours to get to wherever we want to get to and a few transfers of cars. <laughs> so one car gets you to this point, And then once we get into the national parks or, or whatever reserve we're working in, um, the transportation changes and we might ultimately end in just a few motorbikes and we're all carrying different things um, to get to where we're actually going to stay. But each site can be very different. So some places you'll still have running water, Wi-Fi, everything's very connected and it's, it's great. <laughs> some places you can only get a signal if you go to this tree or if you get to this elevation. And so it can really vary. Who do you take with you on these trips? Studying primates is very attractive to people, but being without Wi-Fi and running water is not <laughs> very attractive to people. And so there is a bit of, I always have to have this real talk conversation with students who have really expressed an interest in going to the field and that, yes, you will be able to contact people, but it will be inconsistent, it will be unreliable, and there are bugs and snakes. So which one is more important to you? <laughs> because you can do it. But if if the snakes are going to be a deal breaker, then maybe there are other ways to study primates. It's not the glamorous camping, the glamping. No, <laughs> it's not. It's not glamping, but it isn't. It really does depend on where you are. It's We're not pitching tents and eating rice and beans every night, but there, sometimes for entertainment, we watch ants. 
Can you tell us what it's like to be out there and what it's like to a day in in this research trip? What just tell us what a typical day is like? I actually spend most of the days sleeping because the lorises are nocturnal, and so we switch our our schedule to to be like a loris. So our days typically start around five or six p.m. We will head out to the last known location of a slow loris that we're following. So we tend to follow one slow loris per night, and they all are outfitted with a collar that sort of emits a unique signal, and so we're able to find a specific loris when we want to find them for that evening. And we head out to where they are sleeping. And because it's at night, we do also want to be very quiet, and so we keep a pretty slow pace once we get to the lores. We might be very quick as we try to get to the last GPS location, but once we're following the lores, we're somewhat quiet and we're watching them with these red headlamps, which doesn't disturb them nearly as much as sort of a bright white light would. And we take a data point every 15 to five minutes and we take a GPS point. We note what behavior they're performing, what tree they're in, how tall they are, how high the tree is, how high they are in the tree. And depending on what night it is, we may go out to try and capture some slow lorises to take their weight, measure their body lengths, measure their hand span, measure how much fat they have deposited on their body. How do you catch them? In some places, um, it's very popular. There, There's local sort of um, tradition for games in which people climb up very thin poles. And so we find a lot of really good tree climbers uh, in the various places we worked in Southeast Asia. This isn't like a universal thing, but just in some of the places that we've been, people are very inclined to climbing trees, are very good at climbing trees. And so a lot of the times you can just sort of shimmy up the tree to where the loris is. And as one of their sort of anti-predator defenses, they freeze up and pause and hope that you don't see them. Because a lot of their prep predators are going to respond to their movement. And so when they freeze, they become sort of invisible to, to things like cobras and other large snakes. But for us, it becomes helpful because then we can just pluck them from where they are and, and carefully bring them to the ground to, to measure them. And then we release them back as quickly as we can um, in the same place that we found them. Well, you've walked us through a lot about the slow loris. We've learned a lot. Can you talk a little bit more about why it's important to research them and how it might affect humans? Absolutely. When we think about human evolution, it, it's really a progression over millions of years. And with all of the different sort of software or, or formulas we use to, to reconstruct the past, it's important that we have a good set of baseline data. So slow lorises are, you know, farther back in our evolutionary history, but we still don't know as much about them as we do about humans and other great apes. And so if we want to fill in the gap between what we see in the present day haplorines and, and how we sort of evolved to that place, starting with strepsorines and, and um, early non-primate mammals, it's important that we understand what happens um, with these nocturnal strepsorines as well, because they a lot of the times they really do reflect our origins. And, and when we try to reconstruct the past, it's hard to do it when we're missing this big piece of the puzzle. 